We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia where this podcast was recorded and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. Hello there, I'm Daniel Moore and you're listening to Season 3 of the Hearing Architecture Podcast, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. It's no secret that architects love to design buildings and have them get made. They can design houses, skyscrapers, hospitals or trouser emporiums. But sometimes architects design buildings that don't end up getting built or were never intended to be built at all. Over the next five episodes, we're going to be talking to built environment professionals about what can be learned from unbuilt work and if it's possible to learn from designs that don't get tested in bricks and mortar. Our guest in this episode is Philip Vivian from Batesmart Architects. Philip is a registered architect and director of Batesmart at their New South Wales office, who has worked on some of the practice's largest urban growth projects. In this episode, Philip shares the different types of unbuilt work Batesmart take on, why the practice has taken on some of these projects as pro bono work, and how projects focused on a vision of the future can help inspire governments to make our built environment better. I'll now hand over to Sally Sue, who is an Imagine representative based in New South Wales. Let's jump in. Philip is the director of Batesmart. He holds a master's degree in architecture and urban design from Columbia University in New York and has over 25 years of professional experience. Philip's design leadership has ensured numerous design competition wins and design awards, underpinning the successful growth of the Batesmart Sydney studio over the past 15 years. So it's been really, really good to have him appear on our podcast today. And the topic today is unbuilt works and unbuilt architectural works. So I think it is great to have you all around here today because we're very interested in the Bates Smart's latest appearance in the AA Prize for Unbuilt Work. It is the city vision that you've developed for the 2070 project. Philip, to begin, can you introduce that project a little and why that project is significant and how it's been able to spread across the city and be referenced by many agencies since then? Okay, thanks Sally. Um, So I think the project you're referring to was a vision we did for Circular Quay, which was about removing the Carl Expressway and opening up the the foreshore, if you like, of Circular Quay to the harbour. And that project came about because the state government was, at the time, and we started this project probably about four to five years ago, the state government was looking at spending $200 million to upgrade the Carl Expressway and the ferry terminals. And my concern was twofold, that the Carl Expressway fundamentally disconnects the city of Sydney from its harbour and leads to a very poor urban environment down there that is constrained and contested between really multiple modes of transport and very little public open space. And I felt that spending 200 million was not actually going to fix that problem. It, It might have made it slightly more visually attractive, but I thought that it wasn't fixing the fundamental problem, which is the obstruction or the barrier between the harbour and the city. 
I refer to it as putting lipstick on a gorilla. And I thought that by spending 200 million, you were fundamentally locking in that piece of infrastructure for another 50 to 100 years. And my interest was to promote to the various government agencies that have some well, ownership over that space, that they should consider a different path and at a very minimum think, should we commission a study for, in the longer term, how can we achieve a great public space, uh, what we referred to as Australia's urban room, how could we achieve that? And it might not be till 2050 or 2070 or the end of the century, but if we have a long-term aim, we would make steps towards that long-term aim over the next decades, rather than locking in what I thought was a really bad, bad <laughs> urban condition. So re really, we stepped in, if you look at Circular Quay, it's quite contested in terms of government agencies. So Transport for New South Wales have some control over there. The Metropolitan Roads Authority have an interest. The City of Sydney has an interest. Uh, the state government has interest through the Sydney Harbour Foreshore Authority. So there's multiple agencies and there is no overarching agency that can look at an urban vision and try to draw the other players into a holistic vision. And so I felt there was a void there and we stepped in really with a vision to try to motivate people to move towards a cohesive vision. It's not trying to implant a design solution, it's really it's a vision to galvanise action, if you like, amongst multiple players. Absolutely, because I think it's really good to hear you talk about the relationship with vision projects and how we can begin to fill a possible governance void that you've once referenced, where the overarching authority in charge of city making might be lacking in our city. And I think often when we think about unbuilt work, we think of maybe at times work that might be part of competitions that may not have been built because of the system. And I think uh, what would be great to hear you talk more about is how do these unbuilt work come to fruition? Are they vision pieces through research base or is it built through a portfolio of competitions in the city that have led you to begin to create larger vision projects to actually be a public voice for architects and the public and beyond? So, so it's a good question. You're, you're talking about, as a practice, we, we have two types of unbuilt work. One is our urban visions, which we've just talked about. Circular Key is one of those. And, and they are, in a sense, they're, they're city-shaping visions that their interest is in the common good and public interest. And we do those as a pro bono thing. And I've mentioned we, it's trying to advocate in a, a sort of, in a way to advocate for good urban outcomes. The competitions, um, the City of Sydney competitions and other large competitions do sadly sometimes result in unbuilt work. And obviously it's unbuilt when you don't win the competition, but it's a different form of unbuilt work in that I think you're referring to the fact that they're a similar form of intense design activity over a fairly short period of time. And whether we're successful or not, it's a form of design research. 
And so I, I find probably the competitions is one form of design research and uh, it's more realistic design uh, and research because it's it actually is trying to propose an outcome that if you were successful could be built whereas the city visions that we do are literally visions I, i'd say they're not trying to be design solutions there they are designed as a vision to give a kind of an alternative view of of an urban condition and for instance we don't publish the plans and sections because they they aren't relevant they're not trying to be a design solution they are a vision in part they're inspired by some work that I was familiar with when I was living in New York in the early 1990s and the Triborough Planning Authority came out with a series of what were at the time freehand black and white sketches of alternative urban scenarios under different planning conditions. And so they looked at a certain urban condition and they said, well, if we go down this planning path, this is what it might look like in 25 years' time. And if you go down this path, it might look like this. And so what they were trying to do is assist the general public in envisioning the impact of different zoning and regulations. And so they very quickly fast-forwarded urban conditions to an end state to say, understand that if we go down this route, this you know, might feel good for, for your house to be quite separate from other houses, but when you multiply that on mass and over time, this is what it might look like and it might destroy the very landscape that you're trying to protect. And so they they were literally visions. What we're doing is a 21st century um, version of that using today's technology to fast forward into the future, into 2050 or 2070, because there's, to do something like Circular Key, you know, there's some very large um, infrastructural moves that need to be made. Um, and that takes a lot of time, a lot of work with engineers and transport authorities but what we're trying to do is say, why don't we try to look at the end state? If we can agree that there's an end state that is a positive condition that's in the public interest, perhaps that can galvanise action and try to solve the multiple hurdles that we will all, of course, encounter along the way. That's excellent to hear you describe it because I think, in summary, you're really talking about architects working in a pro bono realm to be able to create city shaping urban visions. There's a leadership that you talk about in there because we as architects have the ability to visualise spaces and create 3D images like you would if you were in sketch form or in computer CGI's. And I think with that, I think it pinpoints a design-led thinking process that allows the general public to engage and come on a journey. And the problems you describe are definitely large and definitely takes a lot of agencies and teamwork to come together to resolve. But like you described, it's not a complete solution that is a finished kind of product, but more on a proposed piece to really get the public engaged. And I think we can see that when the city references these projects in their city talk series. How do you see our role play out in this uh, forum where 
more and more, it's becoming quite critical to have public engagement be a priority and how projects should begin with consultation. Many talk about stakeholders or possibly community kind of engagement. Batesmart's work here might not necessarily be a direct process in that, but it has an indirect effect to be referenced by many that are part of city shaping. How does it interact with the public? Let's go back to the earlier part of your statement because you're, you're absolutely right. It is using two areas of an architect's training. So it's design-led thinking. So it's using creative thinking to think about things to design alternative scenarios. And it's using our skills in visualisation to sell some of that design-led thinking. So those two skills are really put together into a vision that is made, so the, the thinking side is made into a series of diagrams to simply explain the steps that might need to happen to the, the person in the street. And I, I often use my, my mother, if you like, needs to be able to understand it. She needs to be able to understand a couple of the simple steps we're trying to do and what we're trying to create. And then the, the visualisation process is to create ideally a compelling vision or idea of an urban future that, again, the person in the street could look at and say, I understand that. I understand the benefits. And we often contrast it with the current urban conditions so one can see the before. It's like a before and after shot. Here it is now. And here's how it could be. And again, just to emphasise, we're not proposing here's how it should be or, or this is what we want it to be. We're trying to say this is an alternative urban future. We're just proposing the removal of some infrastructure and the creation of a major urban space, not a specific design solution. But we're trying to do it in a way that is accessible to the person in the street so that they would look and go, Wow, I, I'd never really thought of it before, but the Carl Expressway does literally visually cut me off from the harbour. And if it was gone, I'd never really realised it. I'm so accustomed to it that I kind of just think of it as part of the city. But actually, if it was gone, it would be incredibly liberating in terms of space, in terms of visual connections to the harbour. and particularly in terms of creating a great public space or public room for Australia at what is a significant site both for pre-colonial and colonial Australians. It's got Indigenous significance as a site and it was also the, the site of the first fleet landing. So it's, it's really, in a sense, the birthplace of our nation um, and yet it's, it's dominated by cars and trains and light rail and ferries and some of those uh, look I guess if we take each of those forms of transport and unpack them for a minute the, the the cars can go the Carl Expressway is no longer needed now we have both the Harbour Bridge serving the west side of the city and the cross city tunnel servicing the east side of the city the Carl Expressway is a car mover is, is a redundant piece of infrastructure. And that is easy to remove. The, the rail line, we have looked at an alternative rail line that would move it one block to the south. So it would 
travel underneath Bridge Street and there would be a, um, a new underground station at Bridge Street and Sydney has all of the tunnelling expertise to develop rail tunnels and this is a relatively short piece of track um, it's under two kilometres long and if you consider that we're, we're currently tunnelling vastly more than that for Sydney Metro, I think this two kilometre piece would transform the relationship of our city to the harbour. Now the light rail and the ferries are both I think pedestrian friendly forms of public transport and also environmentally friendly forms of public transport. So we've left them and they would certainly activate that space we have shown upgraded ferry wharves I think few people would think that we don't need to upgrade those ferry wharves and one of the things we have done though is remove one ferry wharf in front of Customs House so to create a major um, public space in front of Customs House and reconnect Customs House to the harbour which was its original function of course. It was the Customs House where incoming goods and outgoing all went through Customs. It's been disconnected from the harbour which disconnects it from its historic function and we felt that a major kind of hard urban space would be a celebration of the original function of Sydney as a, as a harbour city. That is great to have you illustrate in detail and describe in detail the project because we'll be seeing that in the reference images that we publish and I think it was really good to hear you talk about the thinking behind every little detail. There were definitely vision moments in the project as well as a genuine attempt at reviewing the pragmatics to make sure this project has the ability to, to proceed and move forward. You touched on quite a few sustainability reference in the project and I think it's really good to hear you talk about it because in our current times we have a lot of problems with rapid urbanisation. Sydney's growing really quickly. Lots of development is happening from the city north to west to even south. Infrastructure-led or not, we also have climate crisis at hand that you've referenced in many of your projects. Through that, how do you anchor your projects with the current uh, topics that we've just touched on? What drives it to, to be what it is? Because this project is a series of um, vision across Sydney. This includes Circular Quay, or even Park Street, and Summit Central too. Can you share with our audience the greater picture of the Sydney 2070 project? Sure. So you're absolutely right. I guess all of our urban visions are underpinned by a couple of beliefs and observations in what is what is currently happening in our city. So. We are, as you noted, we're experiencing rapid urbanisation across all cities in the world. And it's been predicted that whilst we currently have about 54% of the global population living in cities, by 2050, that's increasing to about 75% of the global population. So there's, there's mass urbanisation happening across the world. And Sydney's population is predicted to approximately almost almost double, I think we add 4 million people by um, 2050. So one of the thing, questions is how do we create a more livable city in the future, but equally importantly, how do we create a more sustainable city? And we are facing a climate crisis, we do need more sustainable forms of living. And so one of the other concerns I've had is 
looking at the form of development of Australian cities, that we are heading toward, well, we have a very unsustainable city form. And look, by a little bit of background, I grew up in Perth, and I'm going to use Perth because it, it really highlights the point. So Perth is a city that grew up in the second half of the 20th century. It's a monocentric city. It's got a, a central CBD and it's a car-based city and it actually developed what's called a corridor plan and it has these finger-like corridors that it just runs north, south, south, east and northeast and east. It has these corridors and they're based on freeways and it's all about the car and these, these corridors run for... You can drive for nearly an hour in a corridor. Um, and so it's a really an unsustainable form of development with low-rise, low-density, suburban sprawl just going on and on forever. And that form of development is very hard to retrofit more sustainable forms of transport like public transport. So I'm, I was very concerned with that as a city model. And if you then apply that to Sydney and we're going to expand or nearly double our city. If we keep developing in a kind of low-rise urban sprawl, we have a real problem. And so to that end, I'm a firm believer that we should be developing cities that are compact and really well connected by sustainable forms of public transport. So a sort of compact, connected city. And I think the third interest that underpins all of these visions is a belief that our cities need to be more equitable. And I think as we've come into the 21st century, we're seeing the effects of suburban sprawl in the latter part of the 20th century, creating a form of mass urban inequality with people living a long way from city centres, disconnected from the amenity of cities, from universities, from hospitals, they're disconnected from public transport and they're disconnected from jobs. And so we're creating these outer perimeters of people with health and obesity problems, employment problems. So embedded in our city form is a form of inequality. So it's, it's unsustainable, it's inequitable. And what these visions try to do is promote improving public space, improving connectivity by rapid transport and creating dense clusters. I, I believe the way forward is for connected cities that might be polycentric cities and you'll see that Sydney is now heading down that route. So we, we have a vision from the Greater Sydney or the former Greater Sydney Commission which is the three cities vision which will enable people to work in three, at a minimum of three different centres, but also recognises multiple other dense clusters in the city as being important working and living clusters. And I think what that will do this century is give us much more varied housing choice. So if we wind the clock back to the late 20th century, really the housing choice was a small amount of apartments in the inner city and a massive amount of low-density suburban sprawl in the outer parts of the city. And I think we're now heading towards a greater housing choice where you can live in an apartment in the inner city or in some of these denser clusters. And that's needed to stop the sprawl and also to create more affordable housing. And I think probably one of the greatest challenges 
we face and indeed all cities face is the provision of affordable and key worker housing and interestingly just last night we heard Sadiq Khan talk about the fact that in London there 35% of some of their developments are for affordable and key worker housing and I think Australia has a long way to go where currently uh, local government is trying to get between four and five percent of affordable housing and that's simply not enough. We need to look at other global cities and global exemplars and raise the bar and encourage more affordable affordable housing. I think it's interesting to see how the City of London does it. Like us, they offer FSR bonuses, but unlike us, they're offering a, a fast-track approvals process that if you comply with the the upper limits of the affordable housing, they will fast track your approval. And I think we've got to look at innovative ways to unlock affordable housing for this, for our country. Interestingly, one of the other exercises we did, one of the other urban visions was to build housing, if you like, over rail corridors. And we, we did an exercise in the city of Sydney as a local government area and identified the potential. We, we mapped all of the, the rail land in the city of Sydney. We then took a 400 metre or five minute walking radius from all of the transport hubs and we identified land within five minutes walking distance of a transport hub, so a rail hub. And we, we looked at a methodology of building housing within five minutes walk of a transport hub. And that would use well, prefabricated planks to create a land deck and prefabricated housing units as a sustainable form of development over rail. And we then proposed using build to rent as a model. And so by offering this land, which is already in state government ownership, and saying to a build-to-rent developer, you may do a build-to-rent scenario here, but you must provide, and we said 35% as affordable housing. And the the way we came up with 35% is generally in in apartment buildings, multi-residential housing, 35% of the value of an apartment is in the land. And we are saying, well, if the state government offered this land for free in return for 35% of the housing as affordable housing, that would be approximately equate to what the developer would have had to pay for for land if they were building it elsewhere. And so that would suddenly fast track a large amount of affordable housing within walking distance of train stations and metro stations and seemed an ideal way that we could start to tackle this affordability crisis. So that's just using one of the other kind of research exercises that we've done of how to tackle a quality and a housing affordability crisis. Philip, it is really great to hear you talk about this project in detail. So that's the Sydney 2070 project. And I think I will have to say up front that uh, your architecture advocacy is absolutely admirable. And it's so important to hear you talk about these projects because they really contribute to the public and civic debate about cities. And I think it is also very relevant to see how Sydney is transforming. 
George Street is now pedestrianised. There's a lot of infrastructure investment that's happening across our city here. Did all of this had any influence on why this project is so important? How has it changed the details of the project and has your vision evolved through the years as you watch Sydney transform? Yes, it's a great question, Sally, because I guess we did start all of this about 10 or 11 years ago and a lot of the projects you're talking about, so George Street, the addition of the light rail, those have all happened in the years since and I think they are exactly the sort of infrastructural projects that the city should be undertaking. And the other one that we're yet really to, to see, at least in the inner city, is Metro. And again, I think I talked before about having a a connected city with highly sustainable transport. And I think Metro, the light rail and the pedestrianisation and greening of our city is exactly what ought to happen. But if, if we wind back the clock 11 years, one of the first projects we did was looking at height limits in the city of Sydney. We were actually asked by the Urban Task Force to say, well, they, they commissioned three architects to create a vision of Sydney with different and taller height limits. And we, our, our first reaction, and I should say this, the state government at the time had just cancelled Metro, which I, I thought was, an, was a very necessary thing to make Sydney a more sustainable city in the future. And the state government had cancelled it. And, and we instantly thought, well, if we're going to add height and therefore density into the central city, what we need is a more sustainable form of transport. So we instantly link that idea of density, compact dense cities that I talked about before, and transport and said, well, what if we reintroduced Metro through the city and we allowed within, and I think because it was the inner city, we said within 200 metres of a, of a Metro stop, we would allow developers to buy what we call super tall floor space. So it was floor space above the current FSR limit and above the current height limit. And we said they could buy it off the state government. So it was like the heritage floor space is currently traded in the city of Sydney and it has a dollar value and it's traded between developers to allow some developments to increase their floor space. We proposed a new form of tradable floor space being this super tall floor space that could be purchased off the government as a form of value capture so that when they, they've put in a metro, which costs our government a lot of billions of dollars, um, they would capture the value by selling this increased density and floor space around metro stations. And we used that principle to create a vision of the city that had peaks and troughs based around the locations of public transport systems. And I guess if, if there's one project that captures a lot of our ideas about density in clusters and connected by rapid transport, it's that project. And that project did cause quite a stir because we, I've got to be honest, we put the vision on steroids um, and we proposed some very, very tall buildings. But I think it was Daniel Burnham who said, make no small plans because they stir not the blood of men. And I guess based on that kind of philosophy, let's not make small plans, let's make some bold plans. 
and stir things up, we really extended the height and that shocked some people. But it was about demonstrating a principle and that project certainly did that. It put the principle of clusters of height into the public imagination and it, it may be coincidence, but five years later, the City of Sydney's draft DCP came out with height clusters and their height clusters were based around shadow diagrams to public space, which is also, I think, a very good principle, although it was disconnected from the transport system. And what we were proposing is an alignment between height and density and transport. And to be honest, if you could align all three, height, density, transport, and the shadowing planes, I think that's the way forward for a very sustainable city. It's excellent to hear that because I think it is really good to hear for our episode today that we've touched on public spaces at Circular Key, we've touched on densities in the city, we've touched on how we can use our architectural skills to really make noise and be a public voice. And I think there's multiple layers here that we're teasing out here and I think most of the time the collective good is to produce great quality public and urban spaces that will extend further to even having green belt in the city, the natural landscape and parklands that might not be necessarily a first point of design because I think we deal with the built fabric, what's tangible gets reviewed first and then comes infrastructure to move people around cities and so all of those are a kit apart that makes a city. There's components to it from the transport hubs to the OSD overstation designs that may be forms of towers and built forms and they could be of various forms as you introduced today. But all of this, as we begin to look at it, you talk about a commission earlier on, and I think a question I'd like to pose here is that it must be because we have uh, you know, a void in our central agency that has the ability to influence a holistic city making that's making some of these projects still a vision piece. And if you could comment on that, where are there areas where there are optimistic improvements and how can we begin to rally together all of the stakeholders in this uh, project to be able to realise some of these projects that are currently still unbuilt but hopefully be the vision of the future because it is so close and so achievable, but it takes everyone to contribute across all layers of design. Yeah, so it's a great question and it goes, Sally, to the heart of governance of our cities and the value that cities and state governments place on design and the idea of cities and how we create cities, because our, our governments are in the business, whether they realise it or not, of making cities. And indeed, as architects, we're in the business of transforming cities. And I'm going to come back to that later. But so a lot of our visions have come from the, the fact that at a governance level, our cities are structured into silos and you have transport silos, you have planning silos, you have tourism in a silo, sport, um, and I'm going to connect those two in a minute, and they're all separate silos, and really they're only brought together by, in our case, the Premier. And what is missing in that is someone with an overarching vision that connects those silos, but into a city-making and city-transforming proposal. And that agency sadly doesn't exist. The closest I think we've come 
is the Greater Sydney Commission, but it, it has been looking at the macro planning and doing some very good work at the macro scale of transport, connections and large clusters or centres across the city. But no one is looking at it at a, an urban design scale and I, I feel it's, in a governance sense, it's a missing body, if you like. And if you go back 20 years, the um, Department of Planning had what was called UDAS, the Urban Design Advisory Service. And that was a form of it. I think all cities should have a much stronger city-making unit. And I'll give you an example, because we, we did an exercise that was looking at central rail yards and proposing a stadium over central rail yards. And the reason that came about was it was a reaction to the state government at the time had proposed spending, I think it was close to $2 billion, upgrading two existing stadiums, one at Moore Park that they proposed to demolish and rebuild, and one out at Homebush. Uh, which they were going to spend a lot of money upgrading. And that proposal was, to be honest, was a very good proposal for tourism and supported by the tourism minister. It's also a very good proposal for sport in this state and supported by the sport minister and driven by those two departments. Now, it caused a, a furor, as, as many people will remember, the waste of public money in upgrading existing stadiums and indeed in just demolishing one stadium. But it just seemed to us that no one was thinking that if we're going to, as a city and as a state, spend close to a billion dollars, there's a, a city transformation opportunity here. Now, at the same time, the state government was looking at building over central rail yards. And we, we started putting two and two together and said, well, really, if you're going to build a, a new and bigger stadium in Moore Park, and the only form of public transport there is light rail, which struggles to move large numbers of people in a short period of time, and you're looking at needing to move 80,000 people within an hour, hour to an hour and a half either side of a game, you're not really putting it in a place that makes sense for the city. And you'll know that when there are games there, they open up all the parklands for car parking and the cars come in, they destroy all the parklands and cause massive traffic jams. And then afterwards, because the people can't get anywhere, they filter out through Paddington, tipping over bins, smashing glasses, general urban delinquency. And it's simply that the stadium is in the wrong place as a city. And we started to think, well, actually, the best place for a stadium would be over central rail yards. It's the most transport heavy location in the whole of our state. There's suburban rail lines, there's metro rail, there's country rail, there's a bus interchange and there's light rail. So everyone can get to a stadium. It's also a low rise form of development that if we built over the rail yards would link Chippendale to Surrey Hills and people would spill out into these urban neighbourhoods that have bars, restaurants, and it would actually capture what's called the kind of spill-on effects of hosting a major event. And also, if you imagine a stadium there and you imagine the, the nighttime shot from the drone in the air with our city and harbour in the background, because the idea of hosting major events is about promotion and we mentioned it's a tourism opportunity but when these things go live on television you are 
let, let's not kid ourselves, you are promoting the city to Australia and the world. And so that would be a very powerful location to see a stadium embedded in the city. And if we look over the last 75 years, we've seen stadiums move out of the city, um, particularly in American cities, but also in Australian cities where they're surrounded by car parking. So they were based on the car and next to freeways. And if you think of Waverley Oval in Melbourne, that was based on a freeway. And we've now seen a trend to moving stadiums back into cities so they're part of inner city life. So we came up with an alternative vision to put a stadium over central rail yards. We also thought we would be helping the state government. We put that through to the Premier's department because we thought that if she was seen to be doing something that was not just good for sport and, and tourism, but actually good for the whole city, that she might bring the public on board. Unfortunately, at that time, she'd already had to back down, this is Gladys Berejiklian, she'd had to back down on doing the Homebush Stadium, and it was seen as politically unwise to then back down on Moore Park. So they... She ran with the current stadium location. Interestingly, there was an election and the opposition leader ran with the idea that we might relocate it. One of the peripheral benefits, of course, was there's two benefits, actually. By building a stadium over Central, we could have kept hosting major events at Moore Park, so we wouldn't have had two and a half to three years of economic downtime on not hosting major events. We could have kept hosting them. And of course, once the new stadium's up and running, you could have demolished the old stadium in Moore Park and increased the park there. So you would have not only helped the city in its over rail yards development, you would have improved the parklands around Moore Park. So long and short of it, I guess I'm, I'm saying we, we jumped into a space that there wasn't a government agency to say, hey, great idea, uh, sports minister for a new sports stadium, great idea for more tourism and more people, but hey guys, let's think about this in terms of creating a great city and a great urban place, and how can we transform our cities? And so because of that lack of a government agency, we jumped into that void, if you like. And I think the other thing is, you mentioned how, as architects, we, we see things that are tangible. I, I think that's actually about, I think, sadly, we see ourselves as designing buildings and not often enough are we cognizant of our role in actually transforming cities. It's not about the individual building. What we are actually doing, and over time, is transforming cities and making better cities. Whether we're doing that on our site by providing improved urban connections, improved urban space, but the macro role is to think about what we are doing over time is transforming cities. And I guess that's something we focus on is every building and place we create, we are thinking about what urban moves that will lead to in the future and how it can leave that site a better place. So the legacy of what we do in the city is about transforming that city into a better place for people. That is amazing to hear you describe that and I think what you just spoke about is the essence of why these projects exist because I think it's not just the freedom to explore ideas but also almost our, our duty to be able to contribute our professional skills in 
producing projects that are not just meeting client briefs, but allow for a, a greater legacy to contribute to the community because our projects have a lasting effect. And I think if I was to wrap up this conversation, you, we talked a lot about um, public spaces, we talked about vision projects that have a tangible form in terms of transport-orientated design, and even aligning a lot of um, brief requirements across different agencies. And I think there's definitely merits to be talked about here where it's important to align a vision, and I think that's the leadership you touched on. So if I was to throw in one extra question here, if uh, there was future opportunities to collaborate or collaboration between agencies that are outside your practice, where do you see there is an immediate or future opportunity to really allow for city making to be much more um, civic focused? Look, I, interestingly, just last week, the City of Sydney released their Sustainable Sydney 2030 to 2050 vision and that vision is an update on the Sydney 2030 vision from 12 years ago and it includes uh, what was called 10 transformative ideas and we were very fortunate to work with the city and three of those ideas have come from a collaboration between ourselves with Matthew Pullinger, architects and Paddock, landscape architects. But I would say that it's interesting, I think the city recognises this lack of urban visioning and particularly that Sustainable Sydney Vision document and the 10 transformative projects are now operating, I'd say, in very much the same vein that we've been looking at over the last 10 years. And so the city, I think, is starting to see the the power of a vision and they are then moving to get multiple agencies aligned. What I'd love to see, I guess, is to have an agreement at state government to collaborate and whether it's led by the city or the state, but it's the idea that we would get multiple tiers of government collaborating and aligned and recognising that it's not about our our siloed interests, be they sport or transport or whatever it is, that actually what we're collectively about is building a better city and a better future, a more importantly, most importantly, a more sustainable city, a more connected city, a better place for people, a greener place for people dealing with a cooler urban environment and a more equitable city. So we're about creating better cities and and that needs it needs some agency with as a custodian of the future of our city in my belief. This has been Hearing Architecture, proudly sponsored by Brickworks. Thank you so much for listening and thank you so much to our guest in this episode, Philip Vivian from Bait Smart Architects. Thank you so much for all the work you're delivering to the community pro bono and for helping inspire people across the country to make our built environment a better place in the future. Our sponsor Brickworks also produce architecture podcasts hosted by modernist fanatic and comedian Tim Ross. You can find The Art of Living, Architects Abroad and The Power of Two at brickworks.com.au or your favourite podcast platform. The more support we get from you, the more episodes we get to make. So if you'd like to show your support, please rate, review and subscribe to Hearing Architecture in your favourite podcast app. 
If you want to know more about what the Australian Institute of Architects is doing to support architects and the community, please visit architecture.com.au. This is a production by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. The Institute production team was Madeline Jenkins and Claudia McCarthy and the Imagine production team was Sally Sue. This interview was edited by Pete Carter at Pillow Fort Audio Productions. Written and directed by Daniel Moore. This content is brought to you by the Australian Institute of Architects, Emerging Architects and Graduates Network in collaboration with Open Creative Studio. This content does not take into account specific circumstances and should not be relied on in that way. This content does not constitute legal, financial, insurance or other types of advice. You should seek independent verification of advice before relying on this content in circumstances where loss or damage may result. The Institute endeavours to publish content that is accurate at the time it is published, but does not accept responsibility for content that may or will become inaccurate over time.